Today is Saturday, September the 30th, and this is the 60th episode of The Marshall Report. Welcome to the podcast. In this episode, Interruptive Marketing Strategies, KW Real Estate News, Other Real Estate News, Winter Wildlife, a legal question, and Indonesia. Let's get on with the show. The early 1990s was when everything began to change. On August the 6th, 1991, the World Wide Web went live to the world. There's no fanfare in the global media. In fact, most people around the world didn't even know what the internet was. I didn't. I was very happily living up in the mountains north of Taipei. Little did we know then what we know now. We did not know then how impactful the internet would be on how we live and more importantly how we work. But in many ways, how we work is still stuck in the 1990s. I recently wrote about open houses and how they were once uh, the first chance to look at a place for both agents and consumers and how now they are still around only because of momentum because of custom and lack of imagination. In short, open houses have become marketing vehicles for real estate agents, not vehicles to sell houses. Although the internet went live more than a generation ago, things do not change overnight. Momentum, habit, baked in and established practices stand in the way of change. What's interesting is that in many ways, realtors are often early adopters of new technology and ideas. I think it's because we're like small retailers and business owners. We are the last bastion of free enterprise and on an individual level. For example, when BlackBerry was first getting started, I'm sure more realtors had BlackBerries than office workers, dentists, and school teachers combined. And when digital printing became cheaper, realtors rushed in and flooded the market with postcards and feature sheets. You get the idea. However, the real estate industry at the brokerage level has not changed nearly as fast or as much. Brokers and managers and sales trainers and administrators were less keen to change. As a result, many realtor business practices have not caught up with the times. Let's talk about print advertising. Be it in a newspaper or magazines or through postcards and feature sheets, print media has lost its excellent return on investment. Not only are fewer people looking at these advertisements, but it's also nearly impossible to successfully target potential clients via print ads. I got a postcard in my mailbox today. It's from a two-member real estate team that handles luxury properties, investment opportunities, and condominiums. They also help with mortgages, rentals, and new builds. That's not targeting. That's a shotgun approach. Moving on. Telemarketing once ruled the world with absolutely fabulous return on investment. Now, I have pretty much given up on answering my telephone. I get a lot of spam calls and a lot of scam calls. I'm not really interested in buying a new widget, exhibiting at your trade show, or advertising in your golf magazine. Also, the Canadian Revenue Agency knows very well how to reach me by mail or by email, so I don't believe that they have issued a warrant for my immediate arrest no matter how many times you call. Next, the doorbell is a great example of an outdated technology. If my neighbor wants to borrow my lawnmower, he texts me. 
If my daughter's friends are coming over, they text her from the street or the sidewalk and say, hey, we're here. By contrast, when the doorbell rings, we know in our heart of hearts it's a stranger. A stranger who wants to interrupt us with something on their agenda, not ours. And finally, Sally sells on social media and email. Spam is spam. Sending generic messages to everyone in your database, pushing out social media content all the time about your open houses, your recent sales, your brokerage events. It's really, really irritating. These are communication platforms, not marketing platforms. So stop spamming me with your fake news. Go read a book by Seth Godin or something. I've pretty much given up on social media for now, and I'm much happier for the decision. In terms of Kitchener-Waterloo real estate, here are the facts. Homes are selling for, on average, less money than they were earlier this year. Generally, I think it's about 10% lower than they were at the peak time. Statistics that I keep for myself and my clients show that houses that I saw with my clients in September sold for an average of 5% over the list price. Houses are spending more time on the market. Bidding wars are far less common, but still exist. Housing is booming in Kitchener-Waterloo. Much of that housing is not detached homes, but apartments and multifamily dwellings. There are currently about 780 homes listed in Kitchener-Waterloo on the KW board. That's higher than the roughly 300 homes that were listed six months ago. But it still seems like there's nothing good to show my buying clients. Back in the springtime, the real estate market was hotter than a fresh muffin. We as realtors had figured out how to win bids by looking ahead and how to list homes by looking behind. Then, everything changed. Overnight it seemed, but it wasn't. It didn't. Part of the market hit the brakes, hit the wall, hit the bricks. Part of the market continued as it was, business as usual. It was like waking up and adjusting in your cramped seat on a long airplane ride, and when the lights are off and everyone else is asleep slumbering over the Pacific. And realtors changed too. Some of us stuck our head in the sand, believing that it was just a momentary blip. That's wishful thinking, that things would return to a new normal. Some of us hobbled along the hillside like wounded goats in a light rain and damp fog. The rest of us adjusted. It's what we do. Real estate is one of the last bastions of free enterprise. We are on the front lines of the battle. We're like small town independent retailers. We're operating without a net, but we're not working on mysteries without any clues. The clues, they're right in front of us. In Canadian real estate news, Canadian home sales rose in August after four straight months of declines. This was thanks to a rebound in existing home sales in the GTA. The Canadian Real Estate Association expects home sales to drop to a three-year low. Career projects that the number of home sales in British Columbia and Ontario will fall by 10% in 2017 compared to 2016's record highs. Newly released statistics show a growing trend of both investors and homeowners getting what they can out of the market. Essentially, now that the market is cooled, they are kicking themselves and waiting to cash out. There have been increasing reports of problematic closings, particularly for expensive, detached houses, many of which sold for amounts inflated over asking. Now the victors of those bidding wars are facing sobering reality as the average Toronto home price has fallen 19% since April's fair housing plan announcement. Buyers may have lost value before they even received the keys. Canada's census revealed a lot about our housing needs and some interesting facts. 
Canada has more one-person households in 2016 than at any time since Confederation in 1867. Canadians have a lot to be proud of. Melbourne is number one and then Vienna. Vancouver and Toronto, followed by Calgary and Adelaide, which share the fifth spot, are the world's most livable cities in 2017. Speaking of Vancouver, the foreign buyer's tax isn't making Vancouver any more affordable. It's one of Canada's most attractive cities, but it also boasts one of the country's strongest local economies. One year into Vancouver's foreign buyer's tax, real estate supply may actually be the city's biggest problem, not foreigners. A survey of more than 9,000 people in nine countries says that Canadians are among the most digitally active home buyers in the world which has significant implications for consumers and the property industry. I know my clients are digitally active, sometimes too active. What do home buyers want? A bigger house or a bigger yard? Smaller homes with more outdoor space seem to be all the rage lately, as home buyers are abandoning the motto, bigger is better, when it comes to square footage. Let's talk about your money. According to Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation's benchmark, housing is considered affordable when no more than 30% of pre-tax income is spent on homeownership expenses. In Canada, the national average is 45.9%. This means many Canadians will spend almost half of what they earn paying off their mortgage and other property-associated expenses. In another new study, the Fraser Institute found mortgage interest rates fell from 7% to 2.7% between the year 2000 and 2016 and increased the maximum mortgage for Canadians by 53%. Average Canadian mortgages are nearly $200,000, up 5% in a year. The good news is that barely one of 200 mortgage holders is behind in their payments. It's not just that people are borrowing more, it's that more people are borrowing too. There's a story about Toronto's new raccoon-proof green bins that got me thinking about winter-proofing my house. It's time. It's time to put away the patio furniture, turn off the outside water, straighten things out, close the pool. I live in a 100-year-old home in uptown Waterloo. Critters get in. Not raccoons and birds anymore. Mice. I have a problem with mice. I didn't know we had mice until the cat died. I have a couple of traps. I set them up with peanut butter. Mice go in but can't get out. I take them to a local park and let them go in a trash can. Last year, last winter, I caught 14 mice. That's a record. That's a record I hope I don't break this winter. What is a valid agreement? On the chat widget, I received the following question about what is a valid agreement. The message read, Hi, I'm currently leasing an apartment in Toronto and my landlord offered me to buy the place privately. After some emails back and forth on valuation, I accepted to pay her offered price under the condition that she could let me review the minutes of the last few annual co owners meetings and financial statements and perhaps arrange a meeting with the head of maintenance. She refused and completely changed her tone. She said I was being a pain in the ass and that she would rather hire an agent to sell in the open market at a lower price rather than sell to me. This week the agent scheduled over 50 visits and today the owner provided me with an eviction notice. Question. Does my conditional approval of her offered price under a private sale have any precedent over her attempt now to sell to a third party? 
Should I get a lawyer? Thank you, JF. Answer. I'll answer the second question first. When it comes to the law, you should always consult with a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. With residential real estate, most agreements and purchase and sale are done on ORIA forms with standard clauses or on builder forms with different standard clauses. This means essentially that realtors understand the fundamentals of law, but are not experts. I don't know if lawyers love or hate private buyers and sellers, but I avoid them like I avoid the plague, or Vikings, or early morning sales meetings. That said, the law is really interesting. There's a reason for all those books and TV shows and movies about the law. The law is interesting. It is a fundamental part of our society. I'll answer the first question now. The question that JF is asking is, does he or she have a valid contract to buy the place? Or put another way, does JF and his or her landlord have a legal contract? What are the essential elements of a contract? A quick trip to the internet tells me that an agreement must have the following essential elements to become a valid contract. Offer and acceptance, mutual consent of all parties, intention to create legal obligation, free consent of parties, parties must be competent, lawful object, and lawful consideration. Without going into too much detail, it's clear to me that no valid contract exists. This contract does not have an offer that was accepted. It broke down in the negotiation phase of the offer. JF's conditional offer to buy the place was rejected outright. That's pretty clear. Here are a couple things to think about. Number one, the conditions were not met. JF was perhaps going to meet with the head of maintenance. That's pretty unclear. Contracts have to be clear. We need to know who, what, where, when, why of this condition. What was the purpose of this meeting? What was going to happen after this meeting? We need the details. Number two, intentions to create a legal obligation were not met. She called you a pain in the ass and said she would rather sell it to somebody else at a lower price. Her intentions are pretty clear. There are a lot of websites that explain the law. Courts distinguish preliminary negotiations from formal legal offers in that parties to preliminary negotiations lack a present intent to form a contract. Accordingly, no contract is formed when parties to preliminary negotiations respond to each other's invitations and requests. Finally, it's unknown from the message whether or not J.F. and his landlord put anything down on paper, had any time constraints or any deposit money changed hands. I suppose you can still have an implied agreement without them, but whether or not an agreement like that would stand up in court is more than a little dubious to me. In my world, residential real estate contracts are always written down with times and dates, and deposits are always received and held in trust. And I'll end it here. I watched The Deer Hunter on Netflix the other night. Along with Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket, it's a must-see epic Vietnam movie, a moment in time and place captured. Some scenes will stay with me forever, like floating downstream on an old dead tree. I watched First They Killed My Father a few nights before that. It's a story of Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. It was being filmed when we were there a couple of years ago. Spoiler alert, had a Hollywood ending. So I've been backpacking around Asia for the last two winters. I have a ticket booked for November 20 of this year. It's a perk of being a realtor the ability to take off for several weeks over the winter. When there, I get a certain disconnect between Vietnam and Cambodia of today and memories of movies from the 80s. This year, Indonesia.